I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, tonight to uh, the Gospel of Mark, specifically Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, as we look at the Word of God together this evening. This is really part two of a message on Mark 5, entitled, Lord Over Demons. And this particular account of our Lord and His dealings with men is a very provocative one. It's provocative because it also sets in our minds our Lord's dealings with demons. And in Mark chapter 5, the text reads like this. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the, in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they, they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him, but he said to him, Go! Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now as you read a, an account like that of demon possession, it might seem that it is a bit dated because many of us have never even seen any kind of demonic activity. It might even be that most, if not all of us, 
really can't relate to a text like this or what's going on because we don't traffic in this kind of world, or so it seems. And yet, because we know that this is the inspired Word of God and because we know that this is a trustworthy statement of the account of the life and ministry of our Lord, we are touched, we are impacted by this because we see that Jesus truly is Lord over demons. And this is really just one account of what Mark is presenting to us. He wants to present to us, sometimes in chronological faction, but not always so, the opportunity for us to see the lordship of Jesus Christ over all the universe. And here in this particular section of Mark 5, he wants us to know that Jesus is Lord over demons. You remember how we outlined the passage? In verses 1 to 5, we looked first at the demoniac's condition. We went into detail about all of the things that were happening to this man. You remember that we said that this man had had a chain and shackles around him and that he had his dwelling among the tombs. And the chains, verse 4, had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, the text says, day by day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. He must have looked very hideous. Scars, no doubt, were all over his body and he was probably a man that everyone around knew a lot about but wanted to steer clear of. And that was his condition. And then we looked at verses 6 to 9 and we saw the demoniac's conqueror. We saw that Jesus, after having calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, had taken a boat with the disciples and had gone on to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. As soon as Jesus saw him and as soon as the demoniac saw Jesus from a distance, verse 6 says, he ran up and bowed down before him. Not in an opportunity for worship, but really in protest. And he shouted at Jesus, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Apparently, this demoniac inside the man knew exactly who Jesus was, which gives me great insight into the cosmic dimension of the war between God and Satan. Even though the demon world sometimes inhabits the human realm like this man, they still know each other very well. And Satan is attempting to thwart the plan of the ministry of Jesus, even here, and with an idiom of protest. He says, we don't have any business with each other, Jesus. I don't want you to torment me. He knew what was going to happen. In fact, even in Luke and Matthew, it says that they knew this legion of demons that they were about to be sent into the abyss. They knew exactly what was to be their ultimate fate. And in verse 8 it says that Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then began to talk with this demon and even ask him his name. And he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And I told you that that particular word was really emblematic of what a legion meant in that day, which was an army of 
really hundreds and hundreds of men. And the demon had borrowed that name. We don't know exactly how many demons were inside this man, but apparently there were many. Which again gives tremendous insight into the ability of demonic forces to enter into the heart of a man, even spatially inside his body. And really, what we're finding out right in this text is the activity of the demonic world. You say, well, can this happen to Christians? Is there this kind of demonic activity among believers today? There are many who would say that that is exactly what's going on. Well, without really diverting ourselves from the text this evening, next time when we gather together, I want to present to you a message sort of bouncing off of this text about what demons can do to Christians. And we'll spend an entire time together talking about what demonic activity we need to watch out for as Christians and maybe attempt to ask and answer the question, can demons spatially inhabit the life of a believer? Now, that's a very, very provocative situation that we want to try to cover, and we'll do that next time. It's really an important one because the charismatic movement would have us today believe that there's all kinds of demonic activity going on in Christians. And there are deliverance ministries and all kinds of warfare praying and formulas and all kinds of things that we're being told we need to do as Christians in order to protect ourselves and our children. We want to answer the question, is that what we should be all about? And can demons involve themselves in the lives of believers? Uh, will God allow believers to be tested in this way? And we'll try to answer that question. Tonight, we want to return to Mark 5 in the section that we left last time, and that's specifically in verses 10 to 12, the demoniac's concern. The legion of demons, verse 10, says that they began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And what they did was they earnestly asked him to send them into a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, according to verse 11. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Now that, at a first reading, is very strange, isn't it? You ever read your Bible and you're just reading along, just sort of minding your own business, and you read something and you say, Now, that is really bizarre. What does that mean? I mean, what possible advantage would a legion of demons have by being sent into a herd of swine who are then going to be dropped off a cliff into some water? What is the point? Well, we know that there was a big herd of swine. In fact, the text says that there were about 2,000 of them. And it must have been a plateau on one of the very steep mountains. And this big herd of pigs were grazing there and eating, and they were probably herded along by their owners. Now again, as I've told you many times when you go through the gospel accounts, when things are mentioned, although they may appear to be mentioned in passing, 
If you don't study them as you should, you do not really often understand what is going on underneath the text of Scripture and the big picture of it all. You have to understand that these herdsmen were apostate Jews. And they knew better than to be involved with unclean swine. You know if you read your Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7, that Jews were forbidden to mess around with pork, right? And these apostate Jews were apparently in the swine business and they were involved in making money off of the Gentiles because this area, this garrison area, was a Gentile area. And these apostate Jews were coming along and they were selling these swine to the Gentiles. And that would have been expressly prohibited by the Word of God. The Levitical laws that were set up were very, very clear, and they were not to be involved in this kind of business. And the very moment that the demon inside the man, or the demons, see the huge herd of swine, they entreated him. Now, it's interesting also that they implored Jesus, the text says, three times. And that word implore, as I told you last time, is a word that speaks of earnest prayer. It's mentioned several times in our New Testament most often used by believers when they're really earnestly searching out the Lord in a prayer matter. And obviously, the word is used here as a, as a grand request, as a pleading. We might not be able to call it a prayer because these are demons, but they're certainly crying out to Jesus to send them into the swine. You say, well, what's the point there? Well, think about the choice. It's either staying in some sort of uh, spatial realm that we call the earth or going to the abyss. Which would you choose? If you were like some other demons that the Bible says have been chained, bound in judgment ever since the time of Noah, as Peter tells us, they might very well assume that their demon brethren who are in the abyss, chained until the judgment of the great day, this might also be their fate. You know, in the demon world, especially in the, the human dimension and the dimension of the earth, these demons apparently have a great deal of flexibility. Apparently they do the bidding of their master Satan, but they had a, have a lot of roaming room to do. Does it not say of Satan when asked by God, where have you been and what was Satan's response? I've been roaming around the earth. And does not Peter also say that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Apparently Satan, under God's providence, has flexibility of movement. And these demons apparently also have flexibility of movement. And they know very well that this might be the opportunity once and for all for them to be like their demon brethren who are chained under judgment until the great day. And that might very well be God's plan for them as well. And so they're begging Christ. They're begging Him not to immediately send them to final judgment. And so they request exceedingly. Now, we don't know exactly 
all of the dimensions of the demonic world. But we know this, that for some reason, according to verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. I don't know that I will ever know the answer to that question. Why wouldn't Jesus just want to send these demons immediately to their final judgment? Why wouldn't He immediately want to judge them for the sins that they are continuing to commit, not just against this man, but all kinds of demon activity? Well, in the providence of God, that's just not what Jesus wants to do. Why? Well, if you really think about it, could be a number of things. One, Jesus may have wanted to give very tangible evidence that both the man and the people that see the demons leave the man will actually see a very vivid demonstration of the power of God. Think about it. If there are a legion of demons inside this man and all Jesus does is to say, come out, and then the man is totally sane, clothed and in his right mind, might some people in the surrounding district deny that? Might some of them say, well, it was just a coincidence that when Jesus comes along and says to this man, come out, that he finally came out of his insane condition. Now that would be a very, very plausible response in unbelieving minds, wouldn't it? I mean, isn't that true even today? If God were to do a miracle, and God is in the business of doing miracles today, when God crashes into the natural realm in His providence with a supernatural act, when He is reversing the natural course of disease or something like that, what is often the response of some people, some unbelievers? Well, that was just luck. That was just a coincidence. That was just something that didn't have anything to do with God or religion or Christ. It was just something that happened or it was unexplainable. There's any kind of response other than this is the God of the Bible. It could have very well been that Jesus said, you legion of demons, come out of this man, go into the swine, the swine go off the, the, the steep cliff into the water, and that is a story that has circulated for miles and for millennia to prove the power of God. That could be a reason. Secondly, it could be this. It could have been for the man himself. Maybe not for everybody around him, but for the man who was inhabited by the demon. Does it not say at the end of this particular passage in verses 19 and 20 that Jesus says to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim. That certainly has to be a part of the reason. Jesus wanted this man to be a living testimony for, for Christ. And he would have been a proclaimer of the absolute, unforgettable demonstration of the absolute, awesome power of God. I mean, he was an outcast. He would be, in our day, someone who would be confined to an insane asylum. And wouldn't it have been an interesting thing for this man to have from one moment to the next been completely sane, clothed, and in his right mind and beginning to articulate the power of God at a moment's notice in a very, very articulate way. Boy, that would have been a tremendous 
proclamation of God, the Father, and Christ, the Messiah. Well, it would have been tremendous. I'm always, when I read this passage, reminded of a man that I know in biblical counseling circles, a man by the name of Richard Gans. Richard Gans started his career as an unbeliever who went to a college setting and did his undergraduate degree and then a master's degree and then a doctoral degree in psychology. And he wanted to set his career as a psychologist. He wasn't a believer. And sometime after his studies and sometime into his psychological practice, he came to faith in Christ. And as a Jewish man, already having come out of Judaism, now into Christianity, but in the psychological training that he had, he didn't quite know what he was supposed to do now. And he was, at that time, working at a psychiatric place in New York. Uh, an insane asylum, as we might say. And I remember his giving his testimony at a conference that I attended. And Richard Gans was talking with these people in this mental institution. And there was a particular man who apparently for years had not spoken a word. And even those who were on the staff as psychologists had a little side bet going with each other as to who, as a psychologist, might be able to have this man speak a word. And so Richard Gans began to meet with this fellow, and he said for long periods of time, the man just sat in front of him not saying anything. And so Richard Gans began to read the Bible to this man, which, as you know, would not have been kosher, no pun intended, began to read the Bible and at one point began to witness the gospel to this man, still having not said a word. And at one point, Richard Gans made the statement to this man that Jesus Christ is God. And in a moment in time, the man immediately perked up and said, No, he's not. I'm God. He spoke a word. And Richard Gans said, in an illuminating moment, I immediately went to the gospel account where Christ himself says that in the latter days there will be many who will come to you and they will say, I am he. And he says, that's you if you think you're God. And he began to witness to this man and this man ultimately placed his faith in Christ, became a Christian. And everybody on the ward was absolutely just blown away by this. No one had been able to, to have this man say a word. And Richard Gans was the one that the Lord used to not only get this man to say a word, but to profess faith in Christ. And of course, in terms of his being a staff psychologist, this now was not a good thing. Because his boss called him in the office and said, Dr. Gans, I understand from the scuttlebutt that you have been talking about Christianity with this man. Is this true? And he said, yes, it is true. And I also understand that now this man is going to the other people who are detained here, and he's been sharing the gospel with these people. Is that true? And Richard Gann says, yes, praise God. And his superior said, this cannot happen. You can't be talking about Christ to these people. 
And he says, I have two options for you. Number one, you continue to do this, but not here. Or number two, you stop this right now and continue to be employed. So he said, after a time of prayer and discussion with his wife, he went back and said, I can no longer work here. And as the story goes, Richard Gans looked at his profession, that which he had been trained to do for all of these years, and said, I'm finished. And someone advised him to go to Westminster Seminary and start all over again. And so he went to Westminster Seminary, and there he met Jay Adams, who was a professor there, and he started all over again, as though he'd never studied for anything in his life. And he studied and received his MDiv there, and now he's a pastor today in Canada. And, and just absolutely thrilled at what the Lord has been able to do through his life and ministry. He's a wonderful man. Whenever I think of that story with Richard Gans, I think often of this, this demoniac. And when Jesus immediately said to this, this man inhabited by a demon that this demon should come out of him and that this man was clothed and in his right mind, this would have been an, an unforgettable story for this man. He, he would have been the, the most feared man probably of this time. And now, don't you imagine that people would have wanted him to talk with them about exactly what had happened because they weren't there. They wouldn't have uh, radio and television, and so they might have this man come to their home, and they might have this man talk to them about what had happened. And he would be able to share that this, this man, Jesus, he said, come out, and these legion of demons left my soul. And now I'm telling you that Jesus is Messiah. It could have been that. Probably was that. I'm thinking that it might also be something else. It could also have been a stern rebuke to these apostate Jews who were selling this swine. Jesus, knowing the Levitical law, would have said, Listen, I'm going to show you that this, in fact, is not kosher, and 2,000 of your swine are immediately going to be destroyed as a, as a lesson for you all. These apostate Jews knew that their business was being put out of business even before their very eyes. And even for those who doubted, for which there could have been no doubt whatsoever what happened physically, would have also the opportunity to say, even though we didn't like it, even though we didn't want it, this is exactly what happened. Jesus did this. This man did that. These swine went over the edge. We have no explanation for it at all. All we know is that the, what that man is saying is absolutely true. You see, if you sort of get underneath the surface, you can really begin to live where they were living. We don't know exactly, but boy, those sure could be some reasons why Jesus did what he did. We do know this. Verse 14 says, And their herdsmen ran away and reported it into the city and out in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Well, we know that the herdsmen were used in one way, whether they believed or not, Jesus used the opportunity to show them exactly what it meant to know the power of God. They had a good business going on. Maybe they didn't work for themselves, maybe for someone else, and they realized that they could have been blamed for the loss of these 2,000 swine that could bring in good money. And now they're wanting to go back into the city and say, hey, we don't know what happened. It wasn't our fault. But what happened was Jesus 
rebuked these demons. And these demons went into this swine, and that's all we know. Now, what happened to the man? Look at verse 15, the demoniac's conversion. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. I mean, here is the placidness of the man. I mean, he was running wildly among the tombs. He was, he was taking rocks and gashing his body, and he was ripping the chains away and the shackles from his feet. And now he's sitting down. He's not running wildly among the tombs, and he's clothed. He was naked before. Someone grabbed some clothes and put them on this man, and he was in his right mind. Can you imagine going from frenzied insanity to absolute lucidity? He was as calm and placid and serene as a man could ever be. Just think of yourself being one of those in the crowd who would have seen such an event. In fact, the phrase... He was in his right mind could be translated, he was self-controlled. Fruit of the Spirit. He was absolutely controlled. Isn't that what happens to us at our salvation? We have a lot of things going in our life, fear, frustration, frenzy. We have sin and debauchery, whatever it may be. But when Jesus Christ comes into our life, we're serene. Christ comes in and we can immediately begin to manifest only what God can bring, and that is self-control. John Calvin said, Though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. I don't know about you, but when I came to faith in Christ, I didn't have all of these symptoms, but I did have the symptomatic problem of sin. I was not self-controlled. I was controlled by everything that would have been opposite of the Spirit of God. I was not the person I needed to be, and you weren't either. And when Christ comes into our life, whether it's being a demon-possessed man or someone who's just controlled by our own thoughts and our own lusts and our own desires, when Christ comes in, He changes a man. And yet, think about this crowd. What does it say about them in verse 15? They became frightened. Oh, I guess that some of them came to faith in Christ, but apparently, rather than falling to their knees in absolute wonder and awe and reverence for God because He was in their midst. They just feared. Verse 16 says, And, and those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. I mean, they were there. There was, there was no doubting it. But, verse 17, And they began to entreat Him to depart from their region. I mean, that is probably the most provocative verse in this whole account to me. They have seen Jesus, the Messiah. 
He had done that which no one could do. This man was the terror of the city. There was absolutely no way for this to be explained away. And instead of bowing their knee to Jesus, the Nazarene, they asked him to depart from their region. In fact, in Luke 8.37, the crowd says this, And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. That is, that is just incredible to me. I mean, here the, the Savior is in your midst. And yet as soon as I say that, my mind immediately catapults myself back into that time. And if I'm an unbeliever, how do I respond? What do I say? Do I try to explain it away? Am I so gripped with my sin or the loss of revenue? Or maybe I just want Jesus to put on a show, but I don't believe He's the true Son of God. How do I respond? Do I respond with reverence and awe and fear? Or do I say, depart from me. Get out of here. Someone said, since they could neither understand nor control Him, they asked Him to leave. Isn't that what we do? We don't understand. We can't control. So we just ask people to leave. And what about the former demoniac? Look at verses 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he didn't let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. We know this, even if no one else responded, the one for whom it was ultimately intended did respond. A spirit of deep gratitude. Put yourself in this man's place. After all of these years, no doubt, of all of these struggles, all of these things, put yourself in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar, Put yourself in the mind of someone who's been gripped like the woman who had the bleeding problem for 12 years. Put your mind in the place of some of these people and when you're healed instantly at a moment in time, what's your response? Deep gratitude, worship, respect, fear. Yes, all of those and more. Maybe even a sense of wanting to go to be with Christ wherever He is. I can understand that. I mean, for the first time in his life, no doubt, he's clothed, he's in his right mind. I'd want to stick as close to Jesus as I could possibly get. I'd want to be in his hip pocket. I'd want to be everywhere where he is. Whichever the case, Jesus' response was no. Go, 
Report to your people. Literally, report to your family. Why would Jesus do that? Well, because the sense of His ministry is the Word needs to expand. Go! Make sure everyone understands what exactly has happened to you. I don't want you to be one of my disciples. I want you to be a follower in a far region. And you know what? This is also a word of grace to the Gentiles. The capitalist, you remember, is a Gentile community. And he says, go, go to your family. That would have been a wonderful word of grace to the Gentiles. They would have understood immediately who was in their midst, at least some of them by God's sovereign design. He says, go and show them that the Lord has had mercy on you. I want also for you to notice, in verse 19, Jesus asked him to proclaim what great things the Lord has done for him. Ha Kyrios, the Lord, the Old Testament name for Jehovah. Verse 20, he did exactly that. He began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things who? Jesus had done for him. You know, if you look hard enough, and if you study hard enough, you can find many, many implicit references to the deity of Jesus Christ, and this is one of them. You go and proclaim what the Lord, Jehovah, has done for you, and he did exactly that. He went and proclaimed what Jesus had done for him. Jesus is Lord. He's Yahweh. He's equating Jesus with Jehovah. You know, that's why Jesus never asked anyone not to proclaim that He was and is who He is. You know, there were others, and when they would bow down to them, what would they say? Don't do that. I'm a man like you, or I'm an angel. Jesus never did that. He knew exactly who he was. Verse 20 says, And everyone marveled. Marveled maybe in terms of coming to this Messiah, maybe some. Apparently the majority didn't. But by God's sovereign design, I'm sure as Curtis proclaimed this morning, that the sovereignty of God in salvation is exactly what God wants it to accomplish. The Word of God, as it is proclaimed, does not return void. It accomplishes everything that God sets it out to do. Well, this is a, this is a great text in the midst of talking about a demoniac, about the sovereignty of God, about Jesus being Lord over demons. What's the application point for us? Well, ask yourself this question. Were you at a time where you were Maybe not demonically energized, but sin sick. Well, if you know Jesus Christ, you know the answer to that question. Most definitely, yes. And if you were sin sick in your soul, you needed every bit the power of God that's even used here to reverse the process of a heart hardened by sin and deceit. Have you said to yourself lately and to the Lord, Lord, thank you for saving my soul? Can you imagine what the days and weeks and months and years were like for the rest of the life of this demoniac? 
who had delivered him from this sure dread, this Christless eternity? Well, I'll tell you, when you read devotionally the gospel accounts like this, and you begin to put yourself in the place of these people, it just sort of lifts your heart to praise. You just say, Lord, I may not have been like this demoniac, but I'll tell you what, I was sin sick. And you delivered my soul. You brought me out of the kingdom of darkness and you put me into the kingdom of light. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for the redemption that you've given me in Christ. I love what Psalm 66, 16 says. Come and hear all who fear God and I will tell of what He has done for my soul. And that's what this man did. He went all over Decapolis and said, this is what Jesus has done. I'm sure he wasn't too concerned about how his message was getting across. All he was concerned about was just talking about how the Lord had saved his soul. You know, when you become tired and weary, and I was thinking about Kirk, you know, when you're sitting there in a country that's not your own, when you're living out a gospel that is rejected by most, when you are experiencing trials and tests for which at times you are tempted to say, what gives? Remind yourself over and over and over and over again that were it not for Jesus Christ, all of these things would be worse. Christ is my all in all because look at what He's done. And no matter what I do that seems to be a trial and a test that's beyond my abilities, and the place in which I'm ministering is a place that is a hard place, and all of the things that I think in which I'm not getting a fair shake, it all pales in comparison to what God has done for us in Christ. It's, a, it's of no comparison. When you think about what Christ has done, does it motivate you like this man to be obedient to Christ and go and proclaim the gospel? Or do we sit in our homes, even if we're believers, and soak up all of the riches of something without giving someone else the cure? You know, we're all going to go to work tomorrow. Every one of us. We're going to go into relationships with other people and what do we say to them? Do we say, come and hear and I will tell you what He's done for my soul? That's what this man did. That to me is the clarion call of this text. You've been healed physically or spiritually by Jesus Christ. Have you called on other people to come and see what He has done for your soul? I want you to bow your heads. And as you contemplate the truth of this passage, put yourself in the place of this man. I mean, he, he couldn't not speak. He wanted to do everything he possibly could to be faithful to the one who had healed him. Is that what you and I are attempting to do? To be faithful to the one who has healed us spiritually?
forgiven our sin, given us a home in heaven? Or do we become spiritually lethargic and listless? When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Where you told them, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is what great things Jesus has done for me. Lord, we can't even even fathom all of the things that You have done for us and You will yet do, but we must be faithful. We must be faithful. Father, I pray for all of us that we are faithful to the message. What, What would it matter if You saved us and then we kept the eternal message of salvation in Christ to ourselves. It would be like this man or someone in our own day who was cured of an inoperable disease, someone who was terminal, and then kept the potion to themselves. Oh Lord, may this text motivate all of us all of us who fear God to go to others and tell others what Jesus has done for us, all the great things. Thank you for challenging us, for challenging me to be more faithful as a witness for you. Father, I pray that you would take away our own fear, the fear of man, the fear of what someone might say if we had a confidence level in sharing the gospel no matter what their response. I pray that we would do that. Just like this man who stands for all time as the once demoniac who's proclaiming what great things Jesus did for him. May we do that in the power of your Spirit and that which ultimately brings glory to you. Amen.